beetles are arguably the most diverse and species-rich group of organisms on the planet. Almost 400,000 have been formally identified so far, more than double any equivalent group. Thousands more are discovered each year, and beetles comprise about 25% of known animal life on Earth. Just think about that now for the moment. Estimates suggest that even these incredible numbers just scratch the surface of what is actually out there in the tropical forests of the world. And there is great urgency to document, understand and archive this extraordinary diversity while the habitats that support it still exist. So says Max Barkley. Max is curator of beetles at the Natural History Museum in London and he's co-author of Beetles of the World A Natural History. It includes 300 stunning colour photographs, distribution maps and an insight into the astonishing diversity of beetles and their histories. So, lots to chat about, as Aina discovered earlier. Hi, so yes, I'm just in a little park at the moment in in, um, Tel Aviv, so there's a little bit of background noise going on, I'm sorry about that. Yes, indeed, you're certainly not in the Natural History Museum in London, Max Barclay, you who are the curator of the Beatles there. You're one brave man to write a book about beetles of the world when you consider there are 400,000 species. I was afraid to receive the book in case the postman's back broke in half carrying it. Yes, it would have been very nice to have covered all of them, but unfortunately there are just too many. So we had to select a few hundred to represent this enormous group. 25% of all known animal life are beetles. Proof, as J.B.S. Haldane, the evolutionary biologist, said, that the creator had an inordinate fondness for beetles. Yes, we love that, um, that quote by J.B.S. Haldane of the inordinate fondness for beetles. And I talk about that a little bit in the introduction of the book. Because um, beetles, for some reason, have been enormously evolutionarily successful. Uh, you're never more than a few metres away from a beetle, wherever you are on the surface of the Earth except if you're in the middle of the ocean or the middle of Antarctica. Studying beetles actually was a formative influence in both Darwin and in Wallace, the people who who came up with their evolutionary theory, because they were both beetle collectors and because there's such variation and such diversity among the species, they couldn't but realise that Evolution must have taken place in order for this huge variety of creatures to exist. So I suppose, in a way, we have, we have beetles to thank for our evolutionary theory. Well, yes, that's right. I think that people like Darwin and Wallace, who are working on beetles and interested in collecting beetles, they're seeing a picture of the world with a lot more pixels because there are so many species. So you see these subtle variations and these subtle differences and adaptations. And it's very difficult to escape uh, a model of evolution when you're looking at such a huge group with so much detail. Yeah, when you, when you look at insects in general, because obviously beetles are insects, there are four perfect groups of insects in the sense that they have complete metamorphosis. They have eggs, they have larvae, they have cocoons, and finally they have adults, four different stages. So there's a big four group. There are the moths, which are the lepidoptera, the bees, etc., who are the hymenoptera, the flies, who are the diptera, and overreaching all of these we have the beetles, the coleoptera, the hard-winged creatures, coleoptera meaning that their front wings are fused or hardened like an elytra. I mean for anyone just listening to this 
a ladybird is the typical beetle with the hard front wings they open out and there are two back flying wings. This is the design which looks quite ungainly when you see them flying as opposed to butterflies or dragonflies or things like that but seems to be exceedingly successful. Well I think yes you've touched on the secret of their success is that they have the best of both worlds in two ways. Firstly because they can close their wing cases and be protected and then they can open the wing cases and be mobile so they can alternate between being protected and being mobile. And also the complete metamorphosis that is characteristic of the big four groups of insects is a secret of the success of these groups because it allows the larvae to develop and feed on something different from the adults. So you're not competing with your own offspring. And which of those groups is the biggest is actually still a mystery. We have named more beetles than anything else, as you say, but there are probably millions of Hymenoptera and Diptera that have still not been described, especially in the tropical habitats of the world. Yes, indeed. Just because we don't know they're there doesn't mean they're not busy doing their beetle work and all of the rest of it. But your, your book is wonderful because you have actually done it out the way I like books. You have actually taken the different groups of beetles, and there are four of them too, and gone through them all in detail. And it's interesting that the, you have them in four groups or four, four families of beetles, if you like, four suborders. Two of them actually have very, very, very few species and we wouldn't even be familiar with them at all at this side of the world. And in fact, the first one, the Arcostomata, they actually are mostly fossils. There's hardly any living specimens of these. So presumably, beetles lived before the dinosaurs. They go back millions and millions of years in a world which was quite different to what we have now. So was there a difference in size if there was more oxygen in the world, more carbon dioxide in the world, did the atmosphere at different concentrations to it is now? Because isn't it, there's a size limitation on, on, on insects because of the way they breathe and function. And has that changed over the millions of years? Do we know anything much about that from reading about or looking at the specimens of the Arcostomata that are mostly in fact fossils? Well, I think a lot of the fossil Archostomata are larger than the ones that exist today. But the largest known beetle is a living species. We haven't yet found a fossil beetle that's bigger than the, um, the titan beetle from the Brazilian rainforests. But that, again, lives in the most humid, hottest places uh, on Earth in the center of the Brazilian Amazon. Um, If you go back to the Carboniferous, when uh, a lot of the carbon that we're currently putting back into the atmosphere was was free and uh, there was a lot more plant growth and a lot more oxygen, you got gigantic dragonflies the size of seagulls or bigger. And there were probably very big beetles as well, but we haven't found the fossils yet. Fossilization is such an uncertain process. Well, this is it. It's, it's really chance whether they fall into the right moist, damp place and then get fossilised and kept. And Although I suppose there's a greater chance with beetles having their hard wing cases. But anyway, so those two first suborders then really are theoretical as far as we live here in, in, in Ireland and in Britain. But the, the, the second two, the Adifaga 
and the polyphaga, they're the ones. So the adophaga are the ones that go after their food and the polyphaga are the ones like some of the teenagers I know who would eat anything because that's what the word means. So if we look at those now and have it and have an examination of them, I suppose, in a sense, we're, we're looking at the, the adophaga, which are mostly the, the carabids, the ground beetles, the diving beetles, and they are all carnivores. They eat actively other creatures in the adult state. Yes, well, the average beetle, if you ask somebody to imagine a beetle, they'll probably imagine a carabid, a ground beetle. They're these black beetles that are sometimes called clocks, and they wander around on the ground. Most of them can't fly, and they eat worms and slugs and snails and things like that. And you'll have them in your garden. You'll have two or three species of, of carabid beetle in your garden. And some of them have taken to the water, and those are the diving beetles, which are closely related to carabids and their predators in the water. And some of them are quite voracious. They'll eat things like fish and tadpoles and, and, and newts and things like that. The polyphaga, on the other hand, are eating, as you say, a very wide range of uh, different foods, but mostly plants. If we come back to the carabid group again, they, they, they're they the ground beetles, the ones, the big baddies, if you like. If you want to have a lovely pond and you get a, a diving beetle in it, the biodiversity of your pond changes quite quickly. But on top of your pond, if you have a nice still one, you'll get the whirligig beetles. And they're also in that group. They're most amazing. They can actually see above the water and below the water at the same time. Now, above the water, you're seeing in air. Under the water, you're seeing in liquid. And they're able to take these two images at the same time. Now, having just had the cataracts removed from my own eyes, I'm doing well to see it anywhere. But how can you see in two halves at the same time? The, the neural pathways from that must be amazing. And yet, and yet the whirligig beetle is tiny, absolutely. Well, I'd love to know how an insect's eyes work, because, of course, not only the whirligig beetle is remarkable because the eyes are divided in half. So, as you say, it's effectively got four eyes two for the water and two for the air. But any insect has got the eyes divided into hundreds of little facets and somehow it blends the images from all of these separate compound facets into a single image. But of course we can't even imagine how it does that. It's very difficult to think of seeing through the eyes of another human being, let alone seeing through the eyes of a completely different organism. When we come to the biggest group, the one that you were speaking of there, we have 340,000 named species of, I was calling them polyphaga, but you're calling them polyphaga, and that's 90% of all the beetles. So you were saying the biggest beetle in the world is in that group. Is it? Tell us about that one. We always want to know what's the biggest beetle. Is it as big as your hand? Is it as big as your arm? I mean, people have always said, I saw a huge beetle, and that's only because they've blown it up on their mobile phone photograph and it wouldn't cover the nail on their little finger. So how big is this huge beetle? Well, the biggest beetle of all, it's called Titanus giganteus, lives in Brazil, and they can be almost 17 centimetres long. So it's bigger than your hamster, you know, it's the size of a sort of brown rat or, you know, a garden bird, bigger than a blue tit. And um, they can fly, so they fly around. They're not very common, but there are records of them you know, flying towards lighted stadiums where people were playing football or something like that and surprising everybody. I'm sure the people there are familiar with it and they wouldn't be terrified like they are at, at this side of the world. It's Because people are always impressed by size, aren't they, on, particularly on insects? Well, people get very surprised by some of these very large insects that you get in the tropics. 
Of course, the biggest insects that we get in uh, in the UK and Ireland are the stag beetles, which are a little bit more than an inch long. But um, even those can be pretty impressive. And the maybugs, which are about an inch long, maybugs are beetles, in fact, also called cockchafers. And the larvae live in the soil, and the adults fly around, as the name suggests, in May, and they can fly noisily towards lights and surprise people. That's right. Tell us about the stag beetle because I mean it has a different a different lifestyle, isn't it? It's a, it lives in leaf litter or lives in forest floors or, or where does it live? The larvae of the stag beetle live in usually buried wood and they feed on wood for sometimes two or three years. So they have this big white larva that munches away inside a piece of decaying buried wood. So they won't attack your furniture or anything like that. They'll only attack really well-rotted tree trunks and stumps that are in the ground. I don't think it's yet been recorded in, in Ireland, but uh, it can be found around the southeast of England and across the sort of France and Spain and uh, most of uh, Central Europe. So it's fairly widespread. But the male has got big antlers like a stag, which is why it's called a stag beetle, and the males use those for fighting. <laughs> like they all do. <laughs> Yourself, Aina. More details on that fabulous book on the website rte.ie forward slash 